0: If you're alive today, which would include most of us, you can identify with this scenario. Someone, that anonymous someone, is frustrated, bitter, angry. You've tried to hold it in, but finally you've had enough and you decide to take it on. You go to the source of your frustration, well, to the one you think should be doing something about it, and you begin, as you were taught, with a question. But in your intensity, that question sounds an awful lot like an accusation. Were you aware that why is nothing being done about it? Why did you not, right? We've all been on both sides of that conversation, the frustration side and the receiving side. When I'm on the receiving side, I think, well, it's not quite as simple as that. That's a little bit one-sided perhaps self-centric, sometimes I feel a little bit hurt. Have I not done enough that you might not just trust me a little bit? The discussion goes on for a while. And when the air is almost out of the balloon, in order to validate your feelings and justify it jumping to the conclusions you did, in order to back up without backing down, what's the line we use? You've heard it. You've said it. Well, I can only judge based on what I see. I'd like to say I never said it, only thought it, but I can't because my wife is listening. When I'm on the frustration side and I'm the person dumping on someone else, okay, it may or may not be my wife, and she patiently outlines a few things for me, now there's a little battle going on in my mind. My instinct in order to back up without backing out or backing down is to say, well, okay, maybe I didn't have all the information, but you didn't give it to me, right? Which is another way of saying it's your fault. Please tell me I'm not the only one. But then there's this little whisper inside, an unsettling little voice that says something like this. You might want to consider turning that into a confession. I'm sorry, I jumped to a conclusion without knowing the full story. We do that, don't we? We draw conclusions and we validate our conclusions based totally on the data that come from our five senses, our experience. Very rarely does someone come to you and say, You know, I know there must be a bigger picture. What I'm seeing doesn't quite make sense. Can you help me see the bigger picture? There must be more than what I see. Folks, when we think about it, we know there's always more than what we see. There's always more than meets the eye. Always more going on than what we see or what we know. And that's why the Bible ends the way it does with the book of Revelation. That's why the page of the Bible that is Revelation 4 and 5 is the one page I would take with me if I was captured, taken hostage, and told that that's all I could have for the rest of my life. The things we see that distract us, that dominate us, that demand our attention, and ultimately distort our perspective. Unless we see them, in light of the realities of the present that we can't see. The the, the the invisible realities of the future that we can't see. Whenever I come to the point of beginning to think, is it worth it? Whenever I wonder, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? Whenever I wonder, what is it that's really real? Why is life always so unfair? Why is something not happening? Whenever hope and history don't rhyme, there's no better place to go than to Revelation 4 and 5 that open my eyes, that grab my heart to see what's really going on at the center of it all to allow me to become hostaged by hope. John, who was an early follower and core leader for Jesus, is is now an old man in his 80s, exiled political prisoner of Rome on the work camp island of Patmos. Following Jesus has not been what he thought it would be. Leading for Jesus has not led to the status and the success that he had envisioned. Not just for him. But it hasn't seemed to make a difference in the world. And on that island, to encourage him and to encourage us, John is given this revelation of Jesus Christ. Pulling back the curtain to see what's really going on first of all in chapters 1 to 3 what's really going on from God's perspective in the church and then beginning in chapter 4 after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven in the behind the scenes reality that is above that is underneath that is around all the reality that we experience through our senses and the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what na- must take place after this. It, it's chapter six that will begin to talk about what takes place after this, some of it even now, things that look and feel like judgment. But before he sees what will happen, in chapter four and five is this vision of what is happening now. That puts into perspective everything that must happen. That has to happen. And in chapter 4, what John says, what what he sees, as we saw last week, is a throne. An occupied throne. There is one who's in control of the outcomes and he's overseeing the process. He has the right to that control because he is the creator. Creator's rights, as we saw last week, just make sense and john sees two things in chapter 4 about god's sovereign control number 1 how does he exercise it it's all about the rainbow right which tells us that god's sovereign control will always be limited by one self-imposed boundary his grace his promise that he made to noah that there would no be more no judgment of all humanity but around the throne is not just a rainbow There's something else around the throne that points to the one potential issue that we have with God's control. Why do we struggle with it? It's because of what else is around the throne. Around the throne are other thrones. Humanity, doing what we were created to do, to rule, care for the entire creation for God, under God, with God, like God. Thrones, which make us vulnerable. To the temptation to take over from God. At least our own life. Which happened in the garden. And we're all paying the price. It's the the thrones around the throne that gives us the first clue as to the the must. The have to of verse 1 of chapter 4. I will show you what must happen. The reason we will see some of the things that we will see in the book of Revelation. Is because everything is not centered around the throne. All thrones are not submitted to the throne. And ultimately, for creation to be restored and renewed, everything that will not center itself around the throne will have to be dealt with. It it just has to happen. Now, to this point in John's vision, we have a picture that separates all monotheistic one God worldviews from every other worldview. There is one God. One sovereign creator God with creator's rights over his creation. It it just makes sense. You look at the world and you think there must be a creator. And if there's a creator, that creator has ownership rights. The right of control. But in chapter 5, as this throne room prison continues, the camera zooms in closer on the throne. And John sees what it is that makes the Bible Christian faith, totally unique from any other faith. The story that really makes sense, that puts all the pieces together. Chapter 4 is a summary, as we said last week, of the story as we read it from the Older Testament. Chapter 5 is the story as we see it through the lens of the New Testament. So, once again, let's engage with some of our wonderful Ellerslay kids and listen to Revelation chapter
1: Then I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed of seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice,
2: Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals.
1: Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne.
2: And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth.
1: Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they were saying,
2: and the elders fell down and worshipped.
1: Thank you, Serena, Miranda,
0: Tishay, and Danae. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. In the middle of this enraptured state, this encapturing scene of heavenly worship, John is suddenly brought back In a jarring way to his real world struggle. A question that has been asked of him many times as a leader for Jesus. And a question he himself must have wrestled with in his exile on Patmos. What is it that brings him back? It's what he sees in the hand of the one on the throne. A scroll. John knows what that scroll is. What it represents. Immediately his mind goes back to the vision of the prophet Daniel. You see, these, these apoptic, apocalyptic visions of the book of Revelation pick up on the visions of some of the Old Testament prophets, especially Daniel and Ezekiel. In chapter 11 and 12 of Daniel, we see this vision of how things will, really, will finally wrap up, how the sovereign God will bring all things together under him. And what Daniel sees makes him scratch his head and say, huh? And he, and he asks that question, when, when is this going to happen? And and he's given this cryptic response which makes him scratch the other side of his head. And he says, okay, can you be a little bit more specific with me? How will it all really end? And the heavenly guide says, sorry, time's up. The words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Closed and sealed until the time of the end. So fast forward Over 600 years, and here's John in the presence of the throne room, captured by the same kind of apocalyptic images that the prophets saw. And he sees it, the sealed scroll in the hands of God. It's like, oh, my goodness, it's time. So what exactly is this scroll? Well, basically, the scroll is something like what we would call a will. In the right hand of the sovereign God is his will. His plan for how it's all going to happen. Wrap up how creation will be made new. All thrones will come under his throne. This scroll is is actually taking off from where chapter 4 ends. With redeemed humanity leaving their thrones. Laying their crowns before the throne. Acknowledging God's creator rights. How does it end? You are worthy, they said. To receive glory and honor and power. Because you created all things and by Your will. They were created and have their being. And now John sees the scroll that represents that will. The plan for how all things will come together again with all thrones underneath the throne submitting gladly to God's leadership. What's at the heart of reality? A throne occupied by one who is in control and and who has a plan to make it all work right. Can you imagine how excited John is? It's in the right hand, the hand of authority, the hand of execution. It's going to happen. And it's sealed, sealed with seven seals. Seals were stamps of authority, of ownership. To seal a scroll was to tie a string around it, put a piece of wax over top of the string, and that wax was impressed with the personal signet ring. Of the one with authority. The, the point was this, this document could not be opened. By anyone except the one with authority. The one who was the, who, the author of that will. And the one who had the ability to pull it off. Because he'd earned the right to do it. It wasn't sealed because it was a secret. It was sealed because only the person with authority. Could open it and execute it. You see there's two things about a will. Knowing what's in it which we do, and pulling it off. The power to pull off what's in the plan. A battle plan needs a competent general. A big game needs a hero. A will needs an executioner with authority. That's what John is reminded of as the voice of an angel cries, the voice of history. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy? Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scrolls? So that brings us back to the original plan of God for pulling off the will of God. Who was it that was given the right to rule in creation over creation? How had God put it together? What was his plan? It's back to those thrones around the throne. Humans, humans were granted authority under God to rule for God. But humans lost that authority, gave it up. And so, verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. Humanity, given authority, had lost the right. No creature of all of creation is able to open the scroll and look into it. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't those who have tried who think they can pull it off. I love the way Anne Lotz points it in her devotional commentary on the book of Revelation. There are plenty of people who are willing to open the scroll to take the divine right of leading the destiny of the human race. It's the story of history. Alexander the Great was willing. In John's day, the, the Roman Caesar claimed the right and tried to prove he could. It's why John is where he is. Fast forward, Hitler, Stalin. Oh my, the list goes on, and it still goes on today, right? All kinds of people are willing to claim the right to that scroll and prove they can pull it off. But the issue is not who is willing. It's who has the ability, who has the right to pull it off. It's why history is written the way it is. Some people say that history is written from the perspective of the winner. That's not quite true. Written is, history is written out of the core question of the human race, the core longing of the human heart. Who is it that will be able to take charge and bring everything together? And the conclusion in the post-enlightenment world is give it up. No one. There is no such thing. And that's when John's world comes crashing down. Verse 4, I wept and I wept. Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. John is not just caught up in a a frenetic state. Which led to a purging of his emotions. He didn't accidentally eat some magic mushrooms that he found on Patmos. This is not uh, like an ayahuasca retreat. John is all there. And the full weight of the big picture reality overwhelms him. He has given his life to the purpose and plan of God. He, he risked it all. Sold his business to follow Jesus. Gave up everything to serve Jesus. And now it's, it's not even worth it. Has it all been for nothing? If the plan never will be pulled off, why are we doing this anyway? A scroll that can't be opened means that the wrapping up of history, bringing everything together in God, under God, won't ever happen. And life, well, life is just meaningless. Justice will never come. If no one is worthy to pull it off, then it's not worth it for me to hang in there in whatever difficulty I'm facing. You see, the underlying reality that underlies all of our why-can't-somebody-do-anything-about-it frustration is that in our hearts we intuitively know that there is a scroll, a will of the Creator for His creation. And the pursuit of human history is the one of trying to pull it off or find the right person to help us pull it off. It's the story of marriage, it's the story of our job, it's the story of politics. And the pattern of human history is always an unfulfilled destiny. And we either give it up or we grab it into our own hands and try to force it. And what devastates John is that from what he sees behind the scenes at this point, it will never be pulled off. But mercifully, John is not left there for long. Verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, John, John, don't cry. Look, the lion... Of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. Has triumphed. He has triumphed. Not will conquer. No. He has conquered. He is able. He has the authority. And he has the ability to open the scroll. And it's seven seals. There's no longer any question as to who is able to open the scroll. And who it is that will open the scroll. There is one one who has become part of the creation as a human, who has earned the right and has proven his authority and ability to open the throat, And even though he's tired of the ringer of emotions that he's been through, John cannot not obey that voice. If the lion's about to roar, he wants to see it. He wants to see his fierce face, ready to take it all on and make it all right. He wants to see His claws sticking out, ready to take it all on and rip it all up. Justice. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The promise given to God's people back in Genesis 49. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. Someday, A leader from the tribe of Judah will rise up to make it right. He'll be like a lion with regal authority and the power to devour his prey. And out of Judah came the great king, David. And in the Old Testament was this thread of promises that out of David's tree, one who was greater than David would come. Jesus claimed to be that one, and John had believed it. But is it really true? And so John is willing to give it one last chance. He turns his head to be inspired by the sight of this glorious lion. And what he sees does a new number on him. Now it's not just his heart that's being dragged over the map, it's his head that starts to spin. I looked, and I saw a lamb. He hears a lion, and he sees a lamb. That word lamb is very clearly a little lamb. The most opposite thing to a lion that you could ever get. The easiest prey for a vicious lion than you could ever imagine. A vulnerable lamb. But to try to keep his head from spinning, John forces himself to take a closer look. and, And as he does, the pieces begin to fall into place. I saw a lamb looking... As if it had been slain. Its throat has been cut. Its blood poured out. This is the sacrificial lamb of Old Testament worship. The lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, that takes away the sin of the world. You see, we want things to be wiped out by a conqueror, to be set straight by a powerful lion. And if nobody else is going to do it, I will. We want a lion who can pull it off and what God gives is a lamb who went to a cross. John keeps looking, and he realizes that this lamb is not just a sacrifice lamb. This lamb is standing at the center of the throne, encircled by those four living creatures and the elders. And the final thing John sees in verse 6, this lamb has Seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Horns are, are symbols of power. Seven horns, which means absolute, total power. This is not Mary's little lamb. This is the only real ram tough lamb. Seven eyes. Eyes symbolize wisdom. Seven eyes is perfect, complete wisdom. This lamb ain't no wimp, and he ain't no dummy. Seven spirits. Sent out to all the earth. It's a, it's a vision of the Holy Spirit. On the throne is, not, is, is the one God, which is a trinity. The Father seated, the Lamb standing, the Spirit sent out. But what John focused on is the Lamb. Because this book is what we are trying to focus on. A revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, what the wannabe powers saw in Jesus was someone they could pray on and devour. He was a lamb, all right. But they didn't realize what kind of lamb he was because when the enemy of God who had gotten into the heads of those wannabe thrones had convinced them that they could be the big throne, when the enemy of God engineered the death of the Lamb of God, he did not win that moment. That moment is the moment he lost. As Colossians 2 puts it, that moment was the moment he disarmed all of the powers that were against him and against us. Yes, John, it's all gone according to plan, and that ram-tough lamb is now on the throne, and that means everything is in place for the scroll to be opened, for the plan to be pulled off, for everything to be made right, for all thrones to once again come under the throne. In verse 7, he, he, that lamb, took it and the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one had a harp they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of God's people and they sang a new song saying you are worthy to open the scroll to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain he grabs the scroll the scroll is now in the hands of the one who will pull it all off, and we are now ready to roll with the rest of the movie. Once again, I love the way Ann Lott's comments on this scene. The reins of the government of the world passed on to Jesus. Nail-scarred palm. And no one said, you can't do that. No one said, who do you think you are? No one struck up a task force and said, Let's discuss this for a moment. No one disputed his claim to be worthy to rule the world and to fulfill God's purpose for the human race because he is worthy. And he was and is and forever will be undisputed in his power in the universe. And so with a great big cheer, we are now going to see what the universe has been waiting for. The opening of the seals, the reading of the scroll, but not quite yet. Before the Lamb opens the first seal on earth. There's a response in heaven. Another worship scene. When Jesus takes the scroll, that's when the worship scene is cranked up to its grand finale. Verse 8. Verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll to open the seals because you were slain with your blood. You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. They will reign on earth forever. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, they said, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature on heaven and earth and and under the earth and on the seas, everyone to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Okay, now we're ready to see the point of this chapter 5 vision. What chapter 5 adds to chapter 4? At the heart of reality is not just a sovereign ruler with creator's rights who is in charge. At the heart of reality is a sovereign savior who has fulfilled the rainbow promise to not judge the whole earth but to provide a way back for all thrones to be under the throne. He is not only a God with creator's rights. But a God that also has purchaser's rights. He has bought us. Won us back with his own blood. He has bought us. Why? So I can be my own person? No. So I can be his We might balk at the idea of a sovereign God with creator's rights, but when we begin to realize it's not working and why it's not working, because everything is not centered around the throne like it was created to be, can we really resist the God who has humbled himself, sacrificed himself to buy back those whom he already had the right to in the first place, but who left him? Really? Let's wrap it up. What we see here is two things. This vision helps us to see as we live in a world that is not right and realize that it never will be totally right until there's a new creation under God. From chapter 4, we, we saw that must of judgment because not all thrones are under his throne. There has to be something that deals with it. But in chapter 5, we see how judgment does not have to be a must for anyone How God has made a way for his creation, the thrones he created to come back under his throne. Every time we say about God, what is he doing about it? The question from God is, have you accepted and submitted to what I have already done about it? The core plan of God is not judgment. It's rescue from judgment even to the point of paying the ultimate price. This vision is the center of this book. As we move into the rest of the book, it will be tempting to see that the, that the lamb that was sacrificed in the past will, will now morph into a lion and become something different. But in the rest of the book, do you know what the most common title for Jesus is? The most common picture it's the lamb. 28 times in this book, the lamb, the one who judges, the one who holds the scroll in his hand, is the God with the heart so big and so broken for a broken world that he died for it. His eyes are so full of tears as he finally has to say, it's enough. I've given you every chance in the world to avoid this, but it's got to end. But it can be avoided as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, now, today, is the day of salvation. Well, avoided, it's actually better than avoiding judgment because those who have accepted the sacrifice of the Lamb, judgment has already happened. All of the judgment that we see in this book, for us, has already happened. It's on Jesus. Everything. For us, forever, from this point, is about hope. Revelation is not a scary book because the one who holds the scroll is the Lamb. And God has already judged him for any judgment that I deserve. I do not have to ask from that point on, is God judging me? Because he has already judged Jesus for me. The second thing this vision does is it helps us to see how to live In light of that will. It's back to that line that we so quickly use to justify our anger, our frustration, our bitterness. And as we are so clear about our expectations, I can only judge based on what I see. What would happen if, when we are tempted to use that line, What would happen if we use that temptation to say, I can only judge based on what I see, to say to ourselves, hmm, maybe I'm not seeing. Maybe I'm not resting in the reality that is behind all reality. You see, what John sees in this vision is not just what has been removed from us, judgment, but what this slain standing lamb has given us, verse 10, he has made us to be a kingdom. We're back to the thrones. He has made us into a kingdom and priests to serve our God and we will reign as we were supposed to from the beginning. Who will reign? Not just Jesus. Not just the one on the throne. All of the thrones who have placed themselves under the throne will reign. That's you. Is it? That's me. You will finally be recognized for who you know in your heart you were created to be. To be owned by Jesus is not to be smothered. It's not to lose my identity. It's to be elevated and to gain the identity that I really know I was born for. And from that point on, when I see that, I can I can live regardless of what I see and feel around me that seems, to, that seems to nullify it. I can live as if I really am on a throne. And what do I say when I really understand that? It's not, see, I am worthy. I am somebody. No. That's the line of someone who still doesn't see it. It's he is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. It's no longer, see, I am worthy. Look at me and recognize what I am doing and what I have done. It's he is worthy. Because in him, I have received the status, the rank, the rights that I feel I was born for. And it's no longer, is it worth it? It's he is worthy. The lamb at the center makes me say, yes, he is worthy. He is worthy to be trusted. He's worthy to be followed. He's so worthy I can wait with hope for him to make all things right. He will because in the behind-the-scenes reality, it has already happened. And John's vision wraps up not with frustration, with fear With discouragement, he's captured with the glorious hope of what is really happening behind the scenes now and looking for the day when it's going to all come together. That's what we declare as we celebrate what we call communion, the Lord's Supper. It's a declaration that at the heart of reality is a God not only with creator's rights of ownership, but with buyer's rights of ownership. He has won my heart. He has claimed my allegiance. I am his and he is mine. And one day, it will be visible and fully known. Because of what I see behind the scenes, I I can change my line. Yes, it is worth it because he is worthy. Maybe I'm not worthy, but that's not the question. In him, he has made me worthy. When I feel like nobody listens to me, loves me, lets me, Can I hear him say, I have, I do, and I always will. Look to me. Are are you living in that vision? Would you reflect on that as we listen to a song that talks about the holy creator God who deserves everything, who gave everything up so that we too could stand before him and rule with him only. A holy God.